Well, there's that saying that actually originated in 1650 by a Thomas Fuller, uh, this motivational thought that the darkest hour is just before the dawn. And if you're a nerd, if you're a science nerd, physicists have actually gone out and tried to measure this. And uh, for the most, barring any other conditions of city lights and so forth, um, they say that the darkest hour actually does occur um, before the dawn. And so the saying goes. And I'm sure this is a saying that many of us have proffered to people struggling uh, in our lives, loved ones, family, friends, and, and it's a great, succinct, little, beautiful quote, a, a word to encourage someone as they're facing difficult circumstances, some uh, words to hold on to. But these sorts of uh, pithy encouragements, as well-intentioned as they might be, uh, they can prove to be trite to the sufferer. Uh, as an example, just of real suffering, just this past week, the Globe and Mail, in their op-ed section, um, there was an article on military suicides. And this is coming on the heels of uh, Remembrance Day. And I think it was um, in light of Remembrance Day. And this op-ed was uh, basically giving account and report of how uh, soldiers struggle uh, inordinately with depression. And uh, many of them end up taking their own lives. And so this struggle with depression, and as many succumb to it, this article showed me that we all have both our physical battles, soldiers have their literal battles, and the title of the article was Military Suicides, Time to Help the Soldiers Who Helped Us. And so some people have their literal physical battles, but all of us, even soldiers included, behind those physical battles is an inner battle. And we all have our inner battles. We all, I'm sure, if we were given the opportunity, we could share a story in our uh, life where we have felt very low. No matter what kind of of battle we fight then, we all need to learn how to fight these battles and hopefully come out of it um, surviving. And not just surviving, but finding life. As we come to 1 Samuel 27 today, I want to just... Praise God, thank Him once again, because He shows me once again, just straight off the bat, with 1 Samuel 27, that the Bible is an honest story. It's an honest story. It hides no flaws, especially the flaws of its saints. And as we come to 1 Samuel 27, David is coming off of escaping Saul once again and sparing his life for a second time. And Saul gives out, throws out that empty promise once again. David, I will, uh, I, I've done wrong. Come back to my palace. Come back and, and be in my household again. And even as he throws out that empty promise, we see in verse 1 that David didn't believe it. And we're going to see in a moment the words that David speaks to his own heart that proves that this actually was a moment of deep depression for David. Whoever said that the Bible is not relevant uh, hasn't read the Bible. And the Bible is not just a a book of morals in these ancient stories, but it is a book of the human story. But we'll see that it's it's so much more than, than just the human story, that it has this greater story, the gospel story. And so the Bible is so honest here as we 
see a bit of David unraveling in his own way. And so as we come now then to see beyond just a book of morals and, and a book of human history and to dig and mine for this greater story, the gospel story, what I suggest to you today in chapter 27 here, what we see of the gospel is that the gospel relentlessly pursues us even when. The gospel relentlessly pursues us even when blank. We're going to see in David's life here that the gospel was relentlessly pursuing him even when he was depressed, even when he was running away, and even when he was spilling over the issues of his, of his heart. We're going to see that the gospel, it relentlessly pursues, that it's magnanimous, it's so generous, it's immeasurably wide and unfathomably deep that the gospel offers this grace that covers us even when. What is your even when? And I hope that you will see by the end of today's message that Jesus and His grace and the Father through the Gospel is chasing after you, working in you, even when. So first, the Gospel pursues us relentlessly even when we are dis- uh, depressed. Where do we see this? Remember what just happened. Saul gave these promises again that David will be safe. And then, verse 1, David said in his heart. David was speaking something to his conscience, to his mind, to his emotions. David was speaking something into his self that cemented, that set a certain outlook. We need to notice that. We can't miss that. And so the Bible here is also showing us, the author of Samuel is, is also giving us a a, a dynamic in our own lives that so many times we speak into our own hearts as well. By the words we allow to take root in our thoughts and then shape our feelings, we, we, we set the course of our life. And what did David speak to himself? Now I shall perish. Saul just promised life and safety freedom. But instead, David turns that around, speaks to his own heart, and he says, just very simply, a very simple sentence, now I shall perish. David sunk low. In fact, this is one of the lowest of his lows that we see as we see his life unfolding. David's heart had failed him. What he could only see before him was death, was his end. He had lost all hope. To speak in metaphor, it was like there was no longer even a small light in his dark night. Even that faint little candle was blown out. Or he felt the last just shark-infested wave break over him and his morale had drowned and sunk to the depths. But perhaps even more poignantly, he has lost all sight of God's promise to make him king. 
In short, David is depressed. And there's no sugarcoating here. No sugarcoating of his despondency. His heart has given up and he feels the weight of it. What is depression? Depression is a state of downness that is one step from despair. We can glean that definition. We see that working out just even in our passage today. Now, I don't mean to... I'm going to throw up a diagram. And I don't mean to make sterile anyone's depression today or to just turn it into a little scientific exercise and explanation. But at the same time, I offer this diagram to help us understand just the the journey of our emotions and and the ups and downs that we go through life. And if you can think of just one axis, and at the top is all our future expectations, all our hopes, our dreams. And then somewhere in the middle is our present reality, what you actually experience day to day. And then lower on that axis is past pain. And our whole life is navigating between those poles, trying to deal with the past pains in our lives, abuses, rejections, whatever hurts that linger, memories. And those play into our present reality. They affect us for better and worse. And even while we're trying to move forward in life, to grab a hold of life with hopes and dreams, But when we speak of future expectations, it's not just hopes and dreams. It could be future expectation of responsibility. Even tomorrow, tomorrow morning for the young parents here, that you're going to get up by a certain time, get your kids dressed, get them fed, or perhaps you have a deadline at work and and you have to finish off things at home tonight. Certain responsibilities and just a weight that is on you, a future expectation. And so as we progress along in life, the greater and more unresolved our past pains are, they they drag us down. But even as we have wonderful hopes and expectations in life that are trying to lift us up out of our present reality, the more and more there's a gap between what we actually experience in our day-to-day and even as the past pains drag us down and the gap becomes wider and wider between our hopes and expectations and what is expected of us to perform in a certain way and function in a certain way. But as we're being dragged down, the wider that gap becomes, that difference is our depression. And a progression that you might find working out in your own life is when it's smaller, first it's just a certain dissonance in your life, a confusion where your circumstances and your hopes and your feelings don't quite match up. But then that moves along to disappointment. As your expectations, your reality doesn't meet your expectations. And then that can grow into a distress, a disquietude, an anxiety. And then that can grow even larger into a state of depression. And then perhaps we could even become damaged in our thoughts, and in our mental health, our emotions become even more damaged until we get to a point of despair. Now I know Scripture today doesn't speak in these sort of clinical terms, but we can very much 
see David's life progressing this way. To add one more layer then, God has created us body and soul. Our soul is our heart, our our emotions, our thoughts, our mind, and our will. That's those coming together is the entirety of our soul. And when we struggle with depression, it affects us in our soul, but then eventually it starts seeping into our body as well. And even chemically, hormonally, we can find ourselves at risk. And then sometimes, our soul can find some peace, but then the effects remain in our body. And and so, it's very much intertwined. It becomes all the more a challenge to sort through all this and, and find some semblance of peace and health in our lives. Charles Spurgeon, if you've never heard of him, he was given by others the title Prince of Preachers. He lived in the 1800s. And his writings, his sermons, they're all uh, chronicled, uh, just recorded. And, and when you read it, it, it's still so relevant to today. But something special about Charles Spurgeon is that he openly uh, spoke of his depression in his sermons. And at a time in his culture where those kind of, that kind of transparency and candidness and vulnerability would be frowned upon, the gospel of grace gave him a freedom to speak about his struggles honestly. So here's one of his many thoughts that he shared on depression, even as he struggled with it in his own life. Perhaps you are not well, or you have had an illness that has told much upon your nervous system, and you are depressed. And therefore, it is that you think that grace is leaving you. As a side note, there's a mistake in in Christian circles that if you're depressed, then something is wrong with your faith. Depression in itself is, is not a sin. Yes, depression can lead us to think and do things that are sinful, but depression itself is not a sin. And we might think that grace is leaving you, but it will not. Your spiritual life does not depend upon nature, meaning how you feel that day, or how your body is reacting to the weight of life on your shoulders. Else it might expire. It depends upon grace. And grace will never cease to shine till it lights you into glory. And so Charles Spurgeon, as an attested pastor and, and opening up about his depression, it gives me permission today to say, I struggle with depression too. And I don't say that as a way to make this a counseling room for myself. I'm not here to try to do self-therapy for myself. But simply to say that you're not alone. You're not alone. You are not the first child of God who struggled with this. Here in verse 27, and commentators agree that this is a dark moment in David's life. You are not the first and only child to struggle in this way. Other great historical examples, great saints, Martin Luther, who will celebrate next year, the 500th year of the Reformation, He struggled openly with depression. Isaac Newton, a great Christian scientist. William Cowper, a great Christian poet. These men suffered with depression. And I haven't even mentioned 
great women of God. And let alone biblical examples. Today we see David, Job, Elijah. And we'll see towards the end of our sermon, even Jesus. David cries out in Psalm 42, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And in some sense, he's saying, I don't even have the answer to my depression. Meaning the, the reason why I'm depressed. Even though in that same psalm, he says, look to God as the answer, the ultimate answer, but he, he, he can't even find an explanation, a reason, a root for his depression. Even as he knows that God is his answer. As believers, we're never promised a, a pain-free, a disease-free, a struggle-free life. And there comes a time in most of our lives in which we no longer have the strength to lift ourselves. And we, can, we need to just stop pretending ourselves to be strong. And at some point, even your mind wants to break. Because life has stomped on us. And in some shape or form, and, and just trusting God's greater ways, He didn't allow it to stop. Well, moving on. The Gospel, it, it relentlessly pursues us, not only even when we're depressed, but now even when we run away. And this is one of the, the side effects of when we experience depression. And this is not just some psychological insight but we see this in David as he acknowledges his own darkness his own downness then the next sentence he says to himself is there's nothing better for me than that I should escape and here this word escape it doesn't just mean to try to get away or, or, or to, to escape Saul's chasing him down but the meaning wrapped up in this word it means to look for some saving, to look for some reprieve. It's not a far cry from how you and I say today, my escape is blank. And so we have a, a, a colloquialism today, we all have a fix, right? I just need my fix of. And so whether it's overeating, over-exercising, overworking, over-extending ourselves, over-drawing. We all have places that we escape to. And here David is no different. This great saint of God who's this foreshadow of Christ, who's this type of Christ. He's no different. But look where he escapes to. And in this way, he's no different from us. He escapes to the land of the Philistines. This is important to understand because basically David was going to the land of public enemy number one of God. He was going symbolically to the very absence of God. Now of course God literally, He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He was there in Philistine as well. But symbolically, David was going to a place where in his heart, in his mind, God would be furthest. 
these people notoriously blasphemed Yahweh, Allah, Goliath, in his derogatory challenge a few years earlier. And the author wants us to see that David was symbolically running away from God. In some sense, running away from his problems into the arms of an illicit comfort. Jen Wilkins writes a great book describing the attributes of God, none like him. And as in the book, she has this one little section, this thought, and, and she just describes perfectly our, the, just the tendency of our hearts to want to run away. And so she says, we are line crossers, boundary breakers, fence jumpers, carrying inside us a warped belief that our heavenly parent, meaning our, our heavenly father, wants to withhold from us something that is needful or pleasurable. Even as we enjoy His good gifts, we feel a hyper-awareness of the boundaries He has set. And we question their validity. Though He gives us 19 gifts and just warns us away from one danger, we suspect that what is withheld is not dangerous, but desirable. And so David, as back then, as the boundaries of Israel represented literally God's promise God's promised land and God's presence. David in his depression is running away. And he's breaking these boundaries and going as far away from God as possible. So let me ask you, where do you run away to? Or who do you run away to? Now there's more to it. Because in verse 2, the author continues, So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him. See, this wasn't just about David and his own life and his own family, but he was leading and caring for 600 men and their family as well. And so the author continues in verse 3, And David lived with Achish. He had settled there. He went to Philistine at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household. And so he was responsible for probably around 2,000 people when you counted all the wives and children and let alone his own family. And so what we see going on here, what the author wants to see is that David's choices, his depression, his sadness, it was trickling down and affecting the lives of many others as well. And so we need to remember, even, in, even when our struggles feel so acute, we feel like it's just the weight of the world on our own shoulders. We can't forget that there are people around us as well that this affects. And in verse 4, when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And so David running away, yes, it took care of one problem. Saul stopped chasing him, but it created so many other problems. And so we come to the third point. The gospel of grace, we're going to see that it relentlessly pursues us. It will never give up on chasing us, even when we spill over. So what do we mean by, by spilling over? By spilling over, I, I mean basically, for all of us, as we have our inner angst, this inner angst, it plays itself out outwardly in various ways. And I mentioned earlier, some of us over-exercise, some of us overeat, some of us overreact and lash out, some of us 
overwork. Some of us withdraw and check out emotionally. Whatever way it is that, that we spill over what's going on internally. And David here, likewise, in verse 8, he spills over. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gishrites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. It's easy to just gloss over these words. But as Scripture says, that David would leave neither man nor woman alive, the Bible means what it says. He was slaughtering towns, man and woman, and insinuated there as children as well. Now we have to understand, to give give David an ounce of credit, we need to understand historically what's going on here. If you go back to Joshua chapter 13, Joshua going out to claim the promised land, he didn't finish the, the entire work. There were still lands that were left to remain to be claimed by God and His people. And these people were on that list. And so David goes into Philistine and he has to have some... uh, He's also having to negotiate and navigate. How do I stay in the good graces of this enemy king? I'm the one who destroyed his uh, champion Goliath. And in any moment, he he might want to turn on me. And so how am I going to stay in his good graces? And so David sets up this this intricate lie. He goes out and he slaughters these towns that were still left on the list of uh, towns to be taken over by the promised land that God instructed Joshua back in Joshua 13. But then he lies to King Agish. And he says that I'm actually attacking my own people. What's going on here is this. David, his depression is expressing itself through a falsely justified rage. To be able to take the sword to a child, to completely decimate a whole town and leave no one living, You have to have crossed over emotionally, mentally to some point to be able to exert that kind of violence. And although these were the the towns that were still left on the list to be taken over the promised land, God never instructed David to do this. He took it upon himself. And here it becomes his way of just letting out what is going on inside him. We know this because even a few chapters earlier, recall Nabal, the fool, just slighted him. Just ever so small of a slight. And David just exploded. David was a ticking time bomb in some sense. He was ready to smote Nabal in in his household until Abigail intervened. Now, we know that this wasn't clear on David's conscience. Because in verse 11, 
it says, David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, so now the author reveals the reason why he left no living person was because, thinking, lest they should tell us, tell about us, and say. You see, this, this slaughtering, it wasn't weighing, it wasn't peaceful on David's conscience. And so there, there was a dissonance in his own heart. There's something going on here that wasn't at peace. Spurgeon says again, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. And yet the body is left to bear the inflictions of the soul. And what Spurgeon is saying here is, know that you're going to spill over. As your mind and heart, your soul, it, 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 it's facing whatever is before you in life and it can't handle it. It'll spill over. That's what he's saying. Now, where's the hope in this? Where, where's the gospel relentlessly pursuing us? Where's the good news? And I know that this has been a heavy message, but I don't know how other way to... Like something would be wrong if I was just cracking jokes and, 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 and trying to be funny about this. But there is hope. Fast forward to First Chronicles 22. If we just stay in chapter 27, we don't see hope. And curiously, God is not mentioned in chapter 27. David doesn't pray as he usually does. There's no seeking. There's, there's no, no seeking of hope in God in chapter 27. But when we rise above chapter 27, we look at all of Scripture, then we begin to see hope. And so I want to take us to 1 Chronicles 22. And this is at the end of David's life, about 40 years later. And David is giving a charge to his son Solomon. My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, a temple. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have set, shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest. This is now where we begin to see the Gospel. The Gospel relentlessly pursuing even David. David, we know by this point, his story was so checkered. He had committed adultery. He had committed murder. He had, committed, he had shed so much blood. And yet God still includes him in his great story, his greater story of grace, of salvation. And God says, I'm still going to use you. It won't be you who establishes this great story of grace. But through you, eventually, there will come someone from your own flesh and blood. Jesus. David shed 
so much of other people's blood. But every week we come back, and even as we're going to go to this table in a moment, remember that Christ didn't shed other people's blood, but he shed his own blood. Even as David was depressed and, and, and he couldn't find a way to, to handle that, he had this great expectation. And even as his pains were dragging him down because his, his reality wasn't matching up to his expectations, Jesus, he left the highest place. He left heaven, the greatest expectation, to come down to us and experience the deepest pain. And that was his reality being stuck in the very middle of that widest tension, that eternally gapped tension. And even as David ran away and rebelled, he left his father's land. He left his promised land out of rebellion. What does Jesus do? The father asks him to leave heaven, the final, ultimate promised land. And Jesus comes down to earth in obedience, not out of rebellion, but because the Father asked him to. We started with that saying that it's darkest before dawn. But what the Gospel says is that the Gospel is the darkest night. For those of you struggling with depression or you know a loved one in your life that is, What's the, I mean, there are many ways, many steps we should take. Go see a doctor. Exhaust all your options. Get counseling. And all these things that we should do. But the most important step to take is to realize that the gospel is the darkest night. Meaning as Jesus hung there on the cross, even as he wrestled with his great divide between his greatest hopes and his deepest pain, as he hung on the cross for our sins, the best way to fight your depression is to stand behind Jesus, who fills, only the, the gospel, the cross and the resurrection can fill that gap, that diagram that we saw, the gap between your hopes and, and your pains. Only the gospel can fill that truly and perfectly can begin to experience some of that here and now, and you'll experience that in perfection when Christ returns. And realize that the gospel is also the brightest dawn. As you stand behind Christ, as you see Him in His own depression, so to speak, and you realize that He's died for you, He's loved you, and you let that just imbibe yourself. And it's, it, it meets you where you're at. And you can continue to walk forward. You can continue to progress forward. Knowing that the gospel relentlessly pursues you, loves you, is for you. And the God in some way, that he is working all this out to make you more and more like his son. To, to use you minister to those who are going through similar pain, even when. Let's pray.